The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Welcome, Bereans. I appreciate you being here this morning. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We'll get back to Thessalonians, okay? (laughs) I really will. But for this morning, for our study... I want to focus on one verse in 1 Corinthians 10 and really zero in on two words, our fathers, all right? A couple of weeks ago, I was doing my daily Bible reading and was reading 1 Corinthians 10, and as I ponder this, it's just a significant text, you know? It's just, if you understand what's going on here, and Paul says, our fathers, that should almost shock you. And so we're going to talk about that today, and I also think that this the idea of what's going on here really stands against, really brings Scripture against this doctrine of Israel only. Now, we've talked about this many times, and I did a couple messages on this at the conference, on this Israel-only doctrine. And originally it was called British Israelism, and these people think that you have to be a white Anglo-Saxon, you know, to order to be chosen by God. Those are God's chosen people, and only those people get to go to heaven. There alone are the Israelites. And then you have a black group who says, no, it's only blacks who are chosen by God. They're, we're the original Israelites, and you know they're closer to truth and color. Okay, so you know it's only us. So I'm like, is it black? Is it white? What is it? Well, then we got this new group that's really out now, and the problem with these people is they just dog you, you know. You put anything on the internet and they're there making comments, they're there in all the groups, and they're not even believers. Because they believe everything ended in AD 70. Everything. Salvation, God's working with His people, the church, there's nothing for today. So basically, they're just unbelievers. That's what they are, and they say that. We don't believe. There's no salvation today, there's no sin today, it's all over. It's a sad, depressing view. And why they want to bug everybody with their depression, you know, I guess misery loves company? I don't know why. Just go away. I think it's so easily destroyed by the Scriptures. But the problem is so many people don't know the Scriptures. That's why we have to be familiar with them. We have to read the Word of God so we know what it's talking about. So I want to spend our time this morning just examining this text, which I think really destroys this view. There's a lot of scriptures that destroy it, but let's look at this verse this morning. 1 Corinthians 10.1 I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, we can't just pull a verse out of context, make it a spoof text, so we have to deal with the context, so let me try to do that. All right, Paul established this church at Corinth. In Acts 18.1 it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, it's while he was at Corinth that he wrote Thessalonians, okay, that we're studying right now. So he's in Corinth, he's writing that. Now, Corinth was a large city. The population at this time was probably about 200,000. It was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia, which included practically all of Greece, all right? In chapter 18 of Acts 5 and 6, it says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia... Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Yeshua. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. 
I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Now, I'm sure you're aware, whenever Paul entered a city, the first thing he did is went to a synagogue, unless there wasn't one. How many men did you have to have to have a synagogue? Ten. Okay? So if there's no synagogue, then they, he'd go to the water, because people would meet by the water. He'd go down there and meet with them. But when he preached to the Jews, when it got to the point where they were no longer listening to him, then he would go to the Gentiles. Now, the church at Corinth was made up mostly of Greek and Gentile members. Now, the church included some Jews. We see that in 1 Corinthians 7. He talks about circumcision, whether you're uncircumcised. He goes, that doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. But it was largely composed of Gentile converts. And as you come to chapter 10, it almost seems like he's introducing an entirely new subject, but he's really not. He's, uh, this chapter is a continuation of what began back in chapter 8, which was a question he was answering that they had asked about Christian liberty. Now, Paul gave them the basic principle in chapter 8. The principle is stated in 8 and 9. It says, but take care that this right of yours, now the right he is talking about is your liberty as a Christian. It's a right, all right? Doesn't that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So Paul had taught this principle in response to their question about eating meat that had been offered to idols, and he basically tells them, listen, if you want to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, you can. It's okay, idols, not anything anyway. But if the eating of that meat should be a detriment to another believer so that it would cause them to stumble, then you ought to... Maybe not exercise that right. And then in chapter 9, Paul illustrates the principle of limiting your liberty for love from his own life. And he tells us in that chapter he had the right to be supported financially from the church, but he relinquished that right for the further cause of the gospel. And as you get to the close of chapter 9, Paul tells us about his commitment to the course of ministry, and he says this doesn't come easily. If you're going to be disciplined, it's not easy. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. And keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, Paul's life required personal discipline. That's what he's saying here. This word discipline is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's hupopiazo. And here's what Thayer says about hupopiazo. It means to beat black and blue. (laughs) To smite so as to cause bruises. And livid spots. Like a boxer, one buffets his body, handle it roughly, disciplined by hardship. So Paul says, listen, I'm not letting this body do what it wants to do. I'll beat it if I have to, black and blue, to keep under control. All right? That's how he feels about this. And discipline is important. And Paul's basically saying, listen, our liberty can't be limited without discipline. And that's because our sinfulness resents and resists restrictions. So he exhorted the Corinthians to exercise self-denial and effort in order to relinquish their rights for others. Now, 
In the first 13 verses of chapter 10, he enforces that exhortation by showing how disastrous has been the lack of discipline in the case of the Israelites. So this passage is basically a solemn warning to Christians not to give way to temptation as the Israelites did. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brother. And the first word in chapter 10 here is for, which connects it with chapter 9. So let's look at that connection. He ends by saying that I don't want to be disqualified. And then he says, for I don't want you to be unaware. And then he goes into this thing of, you know, they're being disciplined. Now, the immediate context of 10 is the word disqualified. And Paul is illustrating through the example of Israel how the lack of discipline can lead to disqualification. Now, the word disqualified here is the Greek word adakimas, and it means unapproved, rejected, worthless, reprobate. The same word is used in Hebrews 6, which is a very similar passage to this one in chapter 10. And to be disqualified or cast away has nothing to do with salvation. Paul is talking about temporal judgment. He's talking about the loss of rewards. Our salvation is secure in Christ. Once we are saved, we are saved forever. Eternal life can't be lost. It's eternal. It's not temporary. They don't have other plans. There's only one plan. That's eternal life. It's not temporary. Now, I had someone come up to me at one time and ask me, you know, about where is the phrase in the Bible, once saved, always saved? And I said, well, that's not in the Bible. I said, the doctrine's taught there, you know, but it doesn't say that in the Bible. But I took them to Romans 8. And I said, let's look at this text here. <clears throat> Paul says, for those whom he foreknew. Now, the term foreknew here has the idea of to love beforehand. This term must have a limited meaning, for if it's simply meant to know ahead of time, God knows everybody. So if He knows everybody, everybody would be glorified. And that's not what the text says. Whom He foreknew, He predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified. All right, It's an unbroken chain. If He foreknew you, then He predestined you, then He called you, then He justified you, then He glorified you. Okay? To be justified is to be saved, and all who are saved will be glorified. This is the golden chain of salvation. People, our salvation is secure, and Paul never doubted that, never questioned, he's writing to the Corinthians, and he never questioned their salvation. If ever there was a salvation to question, it would be the Corinthians. But he didn't. He didn't worry about that. To be disqualified is to suffer chastisement and to lose our reward for service to the Lord. So Paul teaches what disqualification is in the beginning of chapter 10. Now, there were no doubt those in Corinth who had been disqualified. They were secure in their salvation, and they were enjoying their Christian liberty to the point where it was harming others. And it was to those people that Paul speaks this somber word of admonition, and this admonition is based on God's dealing with His chosen people Israel almost 1,500 years earlier. And Paul sets forth the example of the Israelites, who although greatly privileged, and that's in chapter 10, 1-4, through 4, he talks about their privilege, through their lack of discipline, verses 6-10, through 10, they died in the wilderness being disqualified from entrance into the promised land. He's using this as an example. He wants us to learn. Listen, these people didn't make it. 
And Paul used Israel's experience as an example that the Corinthians were to heed. He's making it clear that being a member of God's community did not ensure against disqualification. Now, in the first four verses, Paul reminds them of the great blessing of, that God's people enjoyed and what they experienced in those early days. But for our study this morning, I just want to focus on verse 1, where Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. Now, the word unaware here is from the Greek word agnoeo. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> because we studied this word when we were in Thessalonians. All right, First Thessalonians fourteen uses the same, or thirteen uses the same word, and agnoeo means to be ignorant, to be unaware, to be without understanding. It's a very common phrase in Paul's writing. It's similar to what Yeshua says, "Amen, amen." In other words, pay attention to what I'm saying here. All right. Well, what was it that he didn't want them to be uninformed about? He didn't want them to be ignorant of Israel's history in the wilderness. Now, think about Israel's history in the wilderness. They're miraculously guided. They got a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night leading them. They're being fed in a miraculous way. They're out in the desert, and bread just shows up every morning. All right? And yet, with all they had, most of them disobeyed and were destroyed. So Paul is illustrating through the example of Israel how the lack of discipline can lead to disqualification. Now notice carefully what he says to this mostly Gentile congregation. He says, Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the Exodus here. In spite of the fact that most of the Corinthian Christians were Gentiles, Paul considers the Israelites as their fathers. Our fathers, he says. This is a clear reference to the Jewish people in the Old Covenant. And I think it should be eye-opening that Paul could include Gentiles in this crucial identifying phrase. Yes, it's a, yet it's appropriate because they are the spiritual descendants of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are our fathers as Christians. And though genetically we Gentiles share nothing in common with them, spiritually we are related. Now notice that Paul calls them brothers. I want you to, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. It's funny because those who hold to this Israel-only doctrine, they'd say, well, Paul here is referring to Israelites, brothers, Israelites. They're brothers by race. Those who are brothers by the flesh. And when you read or hear that kind of stuff, it just shows how biblically ignorant they really are. Okay, because when Paul uses the term brothers, he uses that term to, of believers. There is one time he uses it not of believers, and he qualifies it in Romans 9, 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is the only time Paul uses this term for Jews, because it's generally used of Christians, but he qualifies it here for us. In the Greek here, it's sungenes katasarks, kinsmen according to the flesh. So he's speaking of physical descendants of Abraham, and he's making it known here that that's who he's talking about when he uses brothers, because again, it's normally used of believers. Now, Paul also uses this phrase, according to the flesh, katasarks, in verse 18 of the chapter we're looking at, chapter 10, he says this, so Israel 
according to the flesh. Katasarks are not those eating the sacrifice in the fellowship of the altar. So he exhorts them to consider Israel, katasarks, that is, Israel according to the flesh, ethnic Israel. Most English translations exclude this phrase, according to the flesh. And that begs the question of why Paul felt the need to add this qualifier and not simply write, consider Israel, if that were the only legitimate perspective on Israel that exists. But if Paul is employing katasarka here, according to its typical usage, it seems fair to ask, well then who's Israel according to the Spirit? Kata numa. Who is that then? And that's what 10.1 and everything else in this passage is crystal clear on the appropriate response. The Christians in Corinth belong to spiritual Israel, and they are to conduct themselves accordingly. One of the spokesmen for this Israel-only view, Corey Schultz, states this. He says, only Israel, and then he defines it, Abraham's biological descendants was promised the new covenant. This is so ignorant, it's almost laughable, okay? The whole emphasis of the new covenant was spiritual, not physical. And God stresses this over and over as He goes through it. It's not about physical Jews. Look at Romans 2. For no one is a Jew who was merely one outwardly. How else would you be a Jew? Is there other kinds of Jews other than racial outward Jews? He says, nor is circumcision outward and physical. What? How do you do circumcision if it's not physical? But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. One is not a Jew outwardly, he says. He is saying that being a racial descendant of Abraham doesn't make you a Jew. The new covenant was clearly to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. But when you get into the New Testament, God makes it very clear it's to the spiritual descendants. And this is what we see in Romans 9, 6, where he says, They are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Well, that's confusing. What do you mean? Well, there's a physical Israel, but they're not all true Israel that come from physical Israel. You got the physical Israelites, then you got the true Jews who come out of that group, all right? The two Israels, two types of Jews, ethnic and spiritual. Paul even says circumcision is not outward and physical. Judaism and circumcision were ultimately connected. Now, as I said earlier, Paul makes it clear when he says, our fathers, that the Christians in Corinth belong to spiritual Israel. The Bible is clear that all believers are spiritual descendants of Israel. And Paul makes this really clear in his letter to the Galatians. Notice what he tells them in Galatians 3. Let's uh, start with verse 15. Galatians 3.15 To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Okay? Now he calls them brethren. They're believers. And he uses a human analogy. He likens God's promise to Abraham to the will that we make, people make. In our world, we call it a last will and testament. The word testament here is, in fact, from the same Greek word that 
is translated covenant in this verse. Now, when a person writes a will, his last will and testament, he puts within it his wishes, he puts within it who it's supposed to go to, who is whatever he's got left over goes to, and among other things, he states who the beneficiaries are. Here's what I have, here's who I want it to go to. He's under no obligation, because no one even knows what he's putting in there until he's dead and they open it. So he can pick whoever he wants, give it to whoever he wants. Usually people are mad when they read the will. It's like, what? All right? But he's under, it's not compensation. It's, it's just he's giving what he has to these people. They're receiving an inheritance. Now, Paul notes here that even in the case of a human will, once it's been confirmed, once it's been ratified, or, then the terms cannot be altered. So after the death of the testator, its instructions have to be carried out. It can't be changed. He's dead. He's not going to change it. Let's move on. The implication is that the testament of God, who is infinitely more trustworthy than man, is all the more dependable and unchangeable. And Paul sets this up as an illustration of why the Mosaic Law must not be interpreted as an annulment or an alteration on the terms of the Abrahamic Covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham. Later, he made the Mosaic Covenant. And people think, well, this alters. No, this one covenant doesn't alter this covenant at all. And that's what's very important. The point is that nothing which came after the legal agreement that God made with Abraham would change that original covenant. Both Gentile Christians in Galatia, along with the Judaizers, they would have understood this illustration. They would have concluded that the blessing which God had given to Abraham was received by Abraham by faith, and God made him these promises. Now, this irrevocable trust agreement that God made with Abraham is described in terms of the beneficiary of the trust in verse 16. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who's Christ. Now, as to the promises given to Abraham, the Judaizers, as well as those who hold to this I.O. doctrine, Israel only, would argue that they were only given to physical Israel, because physical Israel, that's the seed, that's the descendant of Abraham. And therefore, since Abraham was later instructed by God to be circumcised along with his family, the Judaizers came along saying, well, then all Christians have to be circumcised. If you want to be a real Jew, and Paul argued that. No, that's nonsense. All right. So following that line of argument, Paul says, God specified in his will that the beneficiaries were to be Abraham and Abraham's offspring. And Paul calls particular attention to the word here, offspring, as distinguished from offsprings, plural, referring to that singular offspring that God had in Christ, not all blood descendants of Abraham. Let me tell you what I see this verse as saying and then try to explain that. Paul is saying that the primary recipients of the Abrahamic covenant were Abraham and Christ. All right, you see that the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring Who is Christ? Abraham and Christ. That's who the promises of the Abrahamic covenant were for. Now this, of course, and please get this part, would include all who are in Christ. Because if you are in Christ, you share all He is 
and has. All right? So the promise is not realized in the Jews who were the physical offspring of Abraham, but Christians who were the spiritual offspring of Abraham. Now, apart from Paul's divinely inspired commentary here, how many of us would have understood that Abraham's offspring was Christ? Please get this. When the New Testament authors comment on a passage from the Tanakh, they don't give an interpretation. They give the interpretation. Okay? So you can read something in the Tanakh and you think, boy, this means this. And then the New Testament writers take it in a totally different direction. They're not messing up. They're telling you what the truth of that is. The New Testament interprets the Old. The Old Covenant was veiled, a veiled representative of the New Covenant. And it's in the New Testament that we learn that the material things of the Old Covenant were types and shadows of counterparts found in the New Covenant. So we have to interpret the Tanakh through the lens of the New Testament. So what I'm saying is here, we need to understand that the last 27 books of the Bible are an inspired commentary on the first 39 books of the Bible. Now, I'm always telling you, you can't understand the New Testament if you don't know the Old. Okay, And that is true, because the language used in the New comes from the Old. But now I'm telling you, you can't understand the Old if you don't understand the New. In other words, the Bible's a whole. Okay, And as you read in the New Testament, you'll read passages and you'll go, well, that was what he was talking about? If the New Testament writer said that's what he was talking about, that's what he was talking about. Milton S. Terry, in his book, Biblical Hermeneutics, writes this. It is of the first importance to observe that from a Christian point of view, the Old Testament cannot be fully apprehended without the help of the New. I like the way he says, from a Christian point of view. That's very true. If you want to understand what God's saying here, you've got to get in the New Testament and figure out what is, what's going on. Now, after Pentecost which was the birth date of the church, the Holy Spirit unlocked the previously hidden truths of the Old Covenant. Yeshua says this to His disciples in John 16, 12, and 13. I have still many things to say to you, but you cannot bear it now. In other words, you're just not going to understand right now. Why not? But He says, when the Spirit of truth comes, that's Pentecost, He will guide you and do all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, as we shall see, the interpretations that the New Testament authors provide are often very different than the prevailing teaching that we think comes from the Old, or that people think today comes from the Old. They're just reading the Old, and they're saying, this is what this means. Well, for example, let's look at an Old Covenant prophecy, and then let's look at its New Testament fulfillment. And without the New Testament, you're not going to get this at all, okay? Malachi 4.5 Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. Now, we just studied the day of the Lord, okay, a couple weeks ago in Thessalonians. It's a time of judgment on Israel. It's at the second coming. Without the New Testament, we would understand this to refer to the second coming of Elijah, before the second coming of Christ. And this is how the disciples saw it. As they experienced the vision on the Mount of Transfiguration, they asked Yeshua. And the disciples asked Him, then why did the scribes say that 
First, Elijah must come. They understood that Elijah was to show up before the parousia of the Lord because they understood Malachi. But according to Yeshua, they missed his coming because he says in Matthew 17, 11, and 12, he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him. He came, but they didn't know it was Elijah. Why not? Because it wasn't Elijah. But did to him whatever they please, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. So the disciples knew the prophecy about Elijah, but they didn't understand that Elijah was a type, a shadow, and that his fulfillment was actually John the Baptist. See, the prophecy of Malachi was actually fulfilled, but it was not physically fulfilled. In other words, Elijah himself did not come back. John came, though, in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Speaking to Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth about their son John, the angel says this, speaking of John the Baptist, he will go before him, for the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, that's from Malachi, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the Jews... They expected the reappearance of the literal Elijah. And John replies to this mistaken notion because they asked him in John 1.21, and they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he says, I am not. What? Well, he denies being Elijah because he's not Elijah. He's John the Baptist, but he comes as a fulfillment of spirit and power of Elijah, he is fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi spiritually. And this is where the emphasis is, people. It's on the spiritual. And everybody today is putting the emphasis on the physical, and you're just missing the whole boat, all right? Yeshua is telling them, if they want to understand the second coming of Elijah, they have got to look at it spiritually. For the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah. So there you go. Yeshua said, well, John is Elijah. He's the fulfillment of that prophecy. The the coming of Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord. So if Christ had not taught us that John was Elijah to come, do you think Christians would still be waiting for Elijah? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we go to Malachi, look, Elijah comes before the Lord, so we know the second coming will not come yet because we haven't found Elijah yet. And they're still waiting for this really old prophet to come back. And When Paul says the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, who is Christ, he is giving us the divinely inspired commentary on the Abrahamic covenant. And the importance of this verse can't be overstressed. People, Galatians 3 is just a major chapter for understanding who we are in Christ. This is is very important, people. Now, he says, now the promises were made to Abraham. What promises is he talking about? Well, this is a reference to the Abrahamic covenant and the promises that God made to Abraham. Now, before we go any further, let's make a distinction here between a promise and an agreement. An agreement is often made between two parties. It can be a parent and child or just two adults, whoever. You're making an agreement. 
And it would involve responsibilities and consequences that would be agreed upon ahead of time. Agreements can be both positive and negative. All right? Here's an example of a positive agreement. I tell Zoe, if you do your homework, I'll take you to Chick-fil-A for dinner. That's positive. She likes Chick-fil-A, okay? An example of a negative agreement could be this. I just say, Zoe, if you don't do your homework, you're grounded from your phone for a day. That's a negative. But in either case, each side has a responsibility. If she didn't do her homework, I'm going to do something. If she does do her homework, I'm going to do something. All right, we have an agreement. That's an agreement. There's consequences to follow. Promises are different than agreements. A promise is based on one person. And that person, for whatever reason, out of love, out of care, he expresses, I'm going to do this for you. Let's say I say to Zoe, Zoe, Saturday, we're going to Shakura for all-you-can-eat sushi. Yeah, she loves sushi. Okay. And I made that promise to her simply because I love her. I know she loves sushi. Let's go do it. No conditions involved. All right. She doesn't contribute anything. She doesn't help with the promise. It's just based on my love for her, my desire to bless her. All right. Now, I think everybody understands the difference between agreements and promises, right? I mean, children know that. Preschoolers understand that. I mean, they'll react with a sense of rage when you promise them something and don't do it, okay? And so let's say having promised Zoe that I'd take her to sushi, I later add conditions to the promise, okay? Such as, we're not going to get sushi on Saturday if you don't keep your room cleaned all week. And she had every right to say, wait a second, you promised me we'd go. There was no stipulations in that promise, I didn't make an agreement. You just said you'd take me. Why are you changing that? People don't like that's wrong, okay? All right, let's look at God's promise to Abraham. And keep in mind that they are not agreements. They're promises. Abraham was raised in an adulterous culture. His father was a pagan worshiper of idols, all right? And there was no biblical reason to commend him as he grew up in Ur of the Chaldees, but God chose Abraham, and then he worked through his life in some miraculous ways. God made extraordinary promises to him based on nothing except God's own love. The first promise is found in Genesis 12 in these words. Genesis 12, 2 through 3. I will make of you a great nation. Now, you got to understand context here, okay? What happened in chapter 11? Tower of Babel. God just said to all the nations, I am sick of you people. You won't listen to me. I keep telling you to do this. You don't do it. Here's what I'm doing. I'm done with all of you. I'm taking these gods. I'm turning you over to these gods. You worship them. You serve them. I'm done with you. I'm going to start over. Abraham, I'm going to take you. I'm going to make a nation out of you, and that'll be my nation. The other gods can have you people. He says, and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I love that. God had just got done disinheriting the nations and he says, Abraham, I'm going to use you to bless those people I just got rid of. Now, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, let me ask you this. Do you see any ifs in God's word to Abraham? 
This is not an agreement. He's not saying, hey, Abraham, here's what I need you to do. You do this, and then I'll do this. No, there's no agreement here. It's a promise. You read Genesis 12 through 15 in vain to find anywhere where God says, if you do this, I'll do this. In other words, there's no conditions here. This is what's called a unilateral covenant. God said, Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. To understand that this is a one-sided covenant, let's go to Genesis 15. And he brought him outside. This is Abraham. Takes Abraham outside. He said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Now, the word number here is the Hebrew word safar. And I don't know numbers is a good translation here. It, it kind of has the idea of recount, to celebrate, to show forth, to tell. It comes from a root meaning a book or scroll. So he takes Abraham out and he says, recount the stars. In other words, look at the message that's in the stars. And I think he's referring to the gospel in the stars, in the zodiac, if you're able to numb them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I think that's interesting. Now, the ancients thought stars were deities, right? So he says to him, so look at the stars. Your descendant's going to be a deity. What God was promising Abraham at this point, I believe, was influence on eternity that would be immeasurable. He says, and he believed Yahweh. God told him this. He believed it, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you from Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord Yahweh, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, and he cut them in half. And he laid each half over against the other. One half's on this side, one half's on this side. They're on like a slight hill, so they run down, the blood runs down into the valley. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. In other words, he cuts them, he's ready, and nothing's happening. So the birds are trying to eat him, and he's, shoo, get away from here. And then it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted 400 years. That's talking about their bondage in Israel, I mean Egypt, okay? But I will bring judgment on that nation. That's the plagues he brought on Egypt. And afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. They did, they took all the gold and silver and plundered the place, okay? As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, the words here, Yahweh made a covenant, is literally Yahweh cut a covenant. And here we see that God cut a covenant with Abram. Now, to cut a covenant is very familiar with the people of this day, not too familiar with us. We don't do this too often anymore. <laughs> okay, maybe we should. 
This actually is where the symbolism of a wedding, and you got one side sitting over here, bride side and the groom side. That's the oh, that's where the symbolism comes from from the covenant. We're not doing this. I thought it'd be awesome to do this at a wedding. You know, take an animal, sacrifice it, lay it beside each of the the bride and groom comes up and say, "This is what happens to you if you violate this covenant." Okay, and that's what it's about. They take this heifer, they take this ram, they take this goat, they split it in half, they lay the halves opposite one another on an incline so the blood would flow down and puddle at the bottom of the valley. And then the stronger of the two entering into this covenant would go first. They'd walk through, and as they walked through, the blood would splash up on their ankles and get on them. And basically, here's what you're saying as you walk through this covenant. If I fail in any way to keep this covenant, this is what you may do to me. All right? That's the symbolism. This is pretty serious, okay? If you break this covenant, this is what happens to you. After that one, the weaker of the two would walk through, same thing, blood spilling up on them, and the symbolism is the same. If I fail to keep the covenant, this is what you can do to me. Jeremiah makes reference to the same practice in a covenant made by cutting animals when Jeremiah says this, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. And that's the whole symbolism there, okay? You break the covenant, this is what happens to you. You get cut in half, okay? Get the point there? You don't want to violate this covenant? That's why we don't do this today, because... <laughs> that's right, be a lot of dead people. Okay. <laughs> now it says, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. As Abraham is either still asleep or perhaps groggy from the deep sleep he was under, he sees God represented by the fire pot and the flaming torch. This represents God. And God passes between the animal parts by Himself. Abraham's on the sidelines. So God is showing this is a unilateral covenant. Abram never signed this covenant because God signed it for both of them. Abraham didn't walk through. God did. Therefore, the certainty of the covenant made with Abraham is based on who God is. It has nothing to do with Abraham, what Abraham does, what he says. This covenant cannot fail because God cannot fail. Abraham can't break a contract he never signed. And by entering into this contract, there's a sense in which God was saying, if I don't keep my word, let me be put asunder. Which basically he's saying, you know, he's putting his deity on the line as a confirmation of his oath to Abraham. And then the end of it says, the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. By quoting these specific geographic boundaries, and by the way, there's like five different sets of boundaries if you look and compare them all and you're like, well, which one is it? It's not really that important. He's just giving you boundaries here. He's saying that Abraham's descendants will inherit. God's going to make their physical descendants. They get the benefit of this covenant. But Israel's going to inherit this land. But the inheritance of the land was a type. It was a shadow. So with this background of the Abraham covenant, let's go back to Galatians here. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says the promises were given to Abraham and his offspring. The Hebrew word used in Genesis 15 for offspring or seed is zera. 
which is a collective singular that can refer either to one descendant or many descendants. An English collective singular would be sheep or seed. can refer to one sheep, many sheep. And Paul explained that the seed God had in mind in Genesis was the one descendant of Christ. So the term Zerah not uncommonly denotes all the descendants of some great ancestor, his descendants. But it's not normally used of one person. Used in this way, it points to the person as some way outstanding. The Zerah is not simply one descendant among many. This is the descendant. This is unusual. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is based upon the very first promise in the Bible. The covenant was foretold in the Garden of Eden as God declared to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, Zerah. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Again, offspring here is Zerah, the same word used that he used for Abraham of the seed. Both offspring in Genesis 3.15 and offspring in Genesis 15.6 is reference to Abraham, offspring, his descendants, not being many offsprings or many descendants. He's referring to one offspring here and in our text in Genesis, and that is the offspring of Christ. Now, actually, even before Christ became flesh, the New Testament reveals that He is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. In Luke 1, we read about the birth of John the Baptist. And when he was eight days old, at his circumcision, he was given the name John. And at this point, his father Zacharias, filled with the Holy Spirit, sang a song of praise. And this is what he sang in that song. He said, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Israel.'" For He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us, the house of His servant David. Now, he's talking about, okay, John is obviously some fulfillment because he's talking about the Messiah here. And as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So he's talking about the Abraham covenant. He said John is going to be part of the fulfillment of this covenant, knowing that his son is going to introduce Christ to the people. He praised God for performing the oath which he swore to Abraham. Now notice he says here, it does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. Why does Paul qualify the word offspring here? Well, one reason is that the word sperma in the Greek here can be used the same way as it's used in the English. And if you go to the store and you buy seed for your garden, you're not talking about an individual seed. I say, I'm going to get seed. Not one seed. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm going to get a packet. I'm going to get a bunch of seeds. However, if you're going to the store to buy one seed, you only have one in mind, you got to make a distinction. Or else no one's going to understand it, right? So you got to say, well, I'm not talking about a bunch of them. I'm talking about one. And that's what he does here. When he says that the promise was given to Abraham and his offspring, he's making a distinction of a special kind of offspring. A seed or a descendant who will be found in one person. And we have to realize that Paul's definition of offspring contradicts the Jewish nationalistic interpretation. It 
contradicts the Israel-only interpretation of this term. The Jews were convinced that the term Zerah referred to all the physical descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. Therefore, they believed it was absolutely necessary to belong to the Jewish nation in order to receive the blessing. And if you're not familiar with Romans 9, Paul really contradicts that in Romans 9, okay? He said, hey, Isaac had two kids. Guess what? Both come from the same line. I rejected one and accept the other. It's not about physical. Paul is just as exclusive as his Jewish counterparts, but his exclusivity is not based on ethnic identity. Since Christ is the heir of the promise, all those and only those who are in Christ by faith are beneficiaries of the irrevocable trust agreement that God made with Abraham. Look what he says in Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, how do you get to be Christ? Well, you trust Him. You put your faith in Him. You understand the gospel and you believe it. If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. You're His offspring because you're in Christ. It's an amazing thing that Paul deliberately seems to contradict a fundamental assumption in the statement of Genesis 15:5, so shall thy seed be. The word seed should be taken to mean many seeds. But he pointedly declares under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the proper interpretation of offspring is numerically singular. And that the meaning is that the Christ is the singular seed who would be like the stars of heaven. When God established the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, and then expanded upon it in Genesis 15, and then further in 17, what was Abraham thinking? And what did he understand? I mean, what sort of fulfillment was Abraham looking forward to when he was given the word of promise concerning the land? What did he expect? Did he look for an earthly fulfillment? Did Abraham see the type, or did he look past the type to the anti-type? Well, according to God's word in the book of Hebrews, Abraham was looking past the type to the anti-type. He was looking for a heavenly city. Hebrews 11, 9 through 10. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So by faith he dwells in the land of promise. By faith in God's promise of a heavenly city, he lived like a pilgrim on the earth. He knew the earth wasn't his home, so he never tried to make it his home. The city Abraham was looking for was the heavenly Jerusalem. Abraham was looking for that heavenly city talk about in Revelation 21 one through three. And also according to Galatians 4, 22 through 26, the new Jerusalem is the new covenant. They're synonymous. So Abraham is a pilgrim in the promised land because he perceived it to be but a pointer, as it were, to a far more substantially heavenly country. He's given a promise of an earthly inheritance and he looked toward the heavenly one. He knew the spiritual was way more important. If you are Christ, believers, please get this. If you're Christ, if you've trusted Christ, you're Abraham's offspring. That's why Paul says, our fathers, because they're related. 
We're related to them spiritually. By faith in Christ, you're Abraham's offspring. Now watch. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Okay, that's the promise. Abraham is offspring. Who's the offspring? You are. You are. You're the offspring. If you're Christ. So it's a singular seed, Christ, and all who are in Christ receive the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Believers, don't let anybody rob you of the joy that the Bible is not for you. Rob you of the joy of your salvation. Rob you of the joy of your fellowship with God by saying, well, this doesn't apply to you. It wasn't written to you. It's not for you. It's all over. If you're Christ, you're Abraham's seed. And the promises are yours. Paul calls the Israelites our fathers because all who believe in Christ are spiritual Israel. We inherit the promise given to Abraham through our faith in Christ. Grace, not race, is what marks out God's people and defines His election in Christ. And for those fools to say that the New Covenant is all about biological descendants... They don't know the Bible very well, okay? Because God kept telling the Jews, it's not about nationality anymore. We're in the new covenant. And the new covenant was made the house of Israel, house of Judah. Spiritually speaking, we inherit those promises. You know, it's sad to see what so many people try to do with the Bible, the destruction they try to rain down on people. But like I said, this group is just beyond making sense because... They're unbelievers, so first of all, why would you listen to an unbeliever? Tells you anything about the Bible. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14. If he's an unbeliever, he doesn't have a clue what's going on in the Bible, so why would you want to listen to them? Okay? It's a spiritual book. It's interpreted. It's understood spiritually. All right? We're spiritual descendants. Don't let them rob you. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, thank you for the promises. Lord, I'm so thankful that the covenant that you made with Abraham included me in Christ. Thank you, Father. A unilateral covenant of blessing because of faith in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. I pray that you'd help us to understand the scriptures. We'd be familiar with them, Lord, that these people would not be able to fool or dupe us because we know what the Bible says. Thank you, Lord, for your grace in our lives. Amen. All right. Questions? Comments? (laughs) Bob Cruikshank, I think you all know him, right? He says, nice job taking it back to Babel and then, call, and then the calling of Abraham. It was never about Israel only. That's so true. It never was. And again, you don't understand the book of Genesis. You know, the first thing he tells Abraham is, I'm going to use you to bless those people I just got rid of. Okay? God always had a plan for the nations. Always planned on calling the nations back to himself. Uh, John 
says every promise that God made is yes, yes, yes. Paul was not waiting on 1948. That's when Israel became a nation, you know, and they, the fulfillment of prophecy, many people think that's, that's pretty ridiculous, but... I'm missing something here. It says absence in most modern translations in the King James Version. I don't, I'm, I don't know if I'm. Uh, boy, I don't know. All right, this is Jan from Pensacola. She says, I agree with you and preterists about John and Elijah. But her friend responded to me with John 121. And they asked him, John, what are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And they asked John, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah, the prophet? And so I guess because he said, I'm not, they say, well, see, he says he's not. (laughs) But Yeshua said, if you can accept it, he is. He, can't, he was not Elijah. And that's why he says, I'm not Elijah. But I've come in the spirit and power of Elijah. I am the fulfillment of Malachi, chapter 4. All right? But I'm not Elijah. Because he wasn't Elijah. He was John the Baptist. This is not, I don't think, really that complicated, people. Uh, great teaching, special request, maybe one day, topical study on the mysteries mysteries of the New Testament. Uh, we could do that someday. <laughs> Where is the promised land? The, prom- the land was a type, okay, of God. The land, see, God, Israel was like, that's where God dwelt, okay? And, you know, in the Bible days, Different gods had different territories. That's why, you know, they're out there fighting and they go, oh, they're gods or the gods of the mountains and we're fighting them in the valleys. That way we'll win. You know, they think this God's territorial. And so when they were out of Egypt, they were away from, out of Israel, they were away from God because God was a God of Israel. So the land was where God dwelt. And so guess where God dwells now? In us. We are sacred space. We're the fulfillment of all that, we don't have to go to a certain piece of land. We don't have to take go over to Israel and take dirt and bring it back to worship God because that's changed. Again, the new covenant is about spiritual realities. Too many people want to make it physical. Do you believe that Christ cut the new covenant Exactly the same way God cut the Old Covenant. It was one-sided, only cut by God in the flesh. Um, well, I believe, yeah, the new, when Christ cut the New Covenant, He basically died for His people. What did we have to do? Nothing, because we had to be chosen. And He chose out a, a group to die for. Now, a lot of people, they don't understand election, or they don't like election, or whatever, but Christ, when He died, He didn't just die saying... I really hope this works. I hope someone will trust my death. No, he died for his people. 
And God gave Christ a love gift for His sacrifice, and that love gift was the elect. The elect of God are given to Christ for His death. So yeah, it was a covenant that we don't have much part in. Now we believe to be saved, but we believe because God gives us faith. He causes it to happen. Someone says the hope of Israel and Christians is the resurrection from the dead. Mm, yeah, that was the hope of Israel. That happened in AD 70. Okay? And Christians are resurrected when they trust Christ. We go from death to life by faith in Him. We're alive. We don't need a resurrection as believers. I'm already alive. I'm already alive in God. I don't, my body doesn't need to come out of any dirt or anything like that. I'm not going to need it. I'm getting a new one. Can't wait, huh? All right, let me see if we can figure out what's going on here. Uh, uh, hi, Dave. Why is it that 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18 teaches Christians miss the fact of the word remain in those verses? We know the Greek word remain means to survive, to be left, to leave around, to leave over, to remain. Over. Isn't it that why the angel told John, write this in Revelation 14.3. Thanks, we are with you and are continuing to pray for Gary and Brenda. Thank you for that, praying for them. I appreciate that. I'm not sure what you're saying here, to tell you the truth. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe you can ask that when we get back to Thessalonians. Because uh, I just I don't understand the question. Jeff, do you understand the question? <laughs> Uh, okay, someone says, great job. Are you guys all such a blessing? Are you guys... Oh, all you guys are such a blessing. Punctuation matters. <laughs> Punctuation matters. All you guys, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. I got to put my... There was no punctuation. I had to put it in myself. So. <laughs> Comment. I owe Israel only makes God's promises to Abraham a limited promise. But it's not I.O. misses the spiritual, eternal kingdom given to all people who believe in Him. Yes, that's exactly. They make it all about the physical. Like I said, I gave you that quote from Corey's. You know, it's all about, the the New Testament is is all for biological descendants. Exact opposite's true. Yeah, I mean, what in the world? It's just, you're missing it. You... (laughs) I said, this view is so foolish, it kind of defeats itself. Hey, I got a great new belief for you. How would you like to believe? Forget it all. You, you can't get saved. You don't sin. You just live your life and then you die and nothing. Israel only. That's what they call themselves. Well, they, I've heard them call themselves full preterists, consistent preterists, because we're consistent. And they say they're consistent with the time statements because they say audience relevance, okay? They'll say, you got to understand, you're not the audience at all. Well, here's the problem. The Bible's not written to me because I'm not a Philippian, I'm not a Thessalonian, so I don't have a specific text written to me. But those books are written to the church, right? I'm the church. 
I'm in the church, so those promises are for me. So there's plenty of stuff in the Word of God that's for me. Now, there's some stuff in Philippians and Thessalonians and Galatians that's just for that church at that time, but most, most of the principles he's giving are for the church universal. And I'm the church, so he's writing to me. They miss all that. They miss the whole time statement. Well, the Bible says it was going to end. The old covenant was going to end. Well, there was a promise of a new covenant. What, what, what happens with that? It's confusing. It's very, like I said, don't get Bible doctrine from unbelievers. Okay? These people claim, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic. I guess I'm confused. You, I don't know any personally, but I know you do. People that don't believe, or that believe that you can go on and sin and do everything you want, right? right? Those are the people you're saying are not believers. No, I'm talking specifically about these people who are holding the Israel only. They say, they say they're not believers. All right. Right. They can't be because you can't be a believer today. So they're not. And some of them, I guess, are atheists, some are agnostic. Some believe in God, but they think, well, God's done with everybody. He quit back in 8070. It's a good way to live, but it doesn't Yeah, I mean, if you want to do your own thing, live how you want, and party it up, well, you might be surprised when you die. I guess that just reminded me of You're telling me about those folks, though, that as of AD 70, the things, you know, they don't, they think everything's shut down. But it's right. a different group of people. It's a different, thinking. yeah. And here's the thing, people. I can't say this enough, and I'm to the point, I wish I could think of something new, but I don't even like to associate with the word preterist. There are so many whack jobs in preterism now, offshoots, and here's the sad thing, let me warn you, and this is a severe warning, John said, be careful who you fellowship with, okay? Just because somebody says, I believe the Lord returned in 8070, does not mean he's your brother does not mean he's in fellowship with you. does not mean he believes like you believe. That's one tiny aspect. I want to know more, what do you believe about the gospel? That's what I want to know. That's what's more important to me. Okay? So, I am not a preterist preacher. <laughs> I am a preacher whose eschatology is preterist. There's so much more to the Bible. A lot of these people online, they focus only on preterism. People, there's so much more. There's so much more. We've got to be straight on the gospel. We've got to be straight on God's calling to us as a people. Not only just focus on one aspect of the Bible. And again, there's just, these people are coming out of the woodwork. They're, they're all preterists. So everybody's, oh, they're preterists. Let's accept them. Let's love them. Let's join with them. Nonsense. Don't do it. Okay? Find out what they believe. That's important. Anybody else? Oh, I think I got one here. Bob Crookshank again says, Christ's glory in the church is for all generations, forever. He says, I.O. is D.O.A. It is dead on arrival because it's such a foolish position, you know? I mean, why are you arguing? Why are you trying to argue with Christians about that they're not Christians, that none of this stuff is for them? I don't even get the point. Just go away. Go do something. you got to have something better to do. 
and bug us, you know. <laughs> As a new preterist, it's so confusing who to listen to. I believe me, brother, I understand. And I understand that. That's why you you are responsible to be familiar with your Bible, okay? And listen to different people then and figure out, you know, where the truth is coming from. Okay, because like I said, if their whole focus is just eschatology, move on. Okay, it's not all about eschatology. And I wish I could be more specific, but. Israel only are atheists in disguise, trying to corrupt the body of Christ, trying to corrupt the church that has faith in Christ, that believe in the Father and the Son. I agree with that. I agree. You know, and like I said, I'm not calling them unbelievers. They say that. Because there's no believers today. Uh, Maggie says, what about using the term fulfilled? Yeah, that, that is a good term. I don't know. Like I said, it just the more weird this movement gets, I just don't want to, I don't like to just be separate from it, you know. And uh, the sad thing is, you know, eschatology is what most people are looking for, Okay. If I do a message on eschatology, it's going to blow up, all right? A couple thousand hits. If I do a message on love your wife, okay, 20 hits. <laughs> Nobody's interested in that. 20 hits. Nobody's interested in that, okay? Love your neighbor as yourself. Ah, oh, you get 12 hits, okay? They don't care about it. I want to know about eschatology. It's over, people. <laughs> That's what you need to know. Let's move on and let's learn some things from the Word of God, about how to how we're supposed to live today because we're alive, we're here, Amen. we're called to love one another. Let's focus on those things that are really important and, man, just quit beat, beating a dead horse.